0: Dr. Hazel Barton has taken two of her life passions and combined them into an extraordinary career. She's a microbiologist working at the University of Akron in Ohio. Dr. Barton is also into exploring caves and says she's had countless adventures in her years of caving where things usually go as planned, but... I've gotten squashed. Um, I've,
1: I've been around when other people have gotten squashed. Um, bad air, entrance collapsings. And people always think, oh, you're so brave and you're so fearless because you do these things. And I never go in thinking something's going to go wrong because why would I go somewhere where I think I'm going to get
0: hurt? Dr. Barton focuses her work on microorganisms that thrive in deep subsurface environments such as caves, a job that comes with some serious perks.
1: You'll walk in and there'll be, you know, sediments on the floor that haven't been disturbed for a couple of million years and you walk through them and yours are the first footprints So it's very much like that man-on-the-moon feeling. So there aren't that many places on Earth where you can go and see something that no human's ever seen without support from a government, right? You have to go to the deep ocean or you have to go up into space, whereas on Earth you can just go into a cave and see where it goes.
0: Dr. Barton co-starred in the 2001 IMAX film Journey into Amazing Caves and has co-written a children's book based on the film. She and her work have also been featured in several documentaries and television programs. On this episode, Run It Like a Girl travels to Akron, Ohio, where guest host Jody Cairns finds out about some of the challenges faced by women in two fields traditionally dominated by men, and how Dr. Barton discovered that she didn't have to sacrifice her femininity to be accepted as a good cave explorer. Dr. Hazel Barton, on this episode of Run It Like a Girl.
2: This is Jody Karens for Run It Like a Girl at the University of Akron in the Department of Biology, and I'm here with microbiologist Dr. Hazel Martin. Hi, Hazel. Thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Um, can you tell us your story? How did you get here?
1: Oh, um... I, well, I don't know where to start. Um, I've always been interested in how things work. I remember one of the earliest thoughts that I thought I had that probably was scientific thought is how you know peas go in looking like peas when you eat them, but they don't come out looking like peas when they're eaten. And I had all these like hypotheses although I didn't structure them that way at the time, about there was a little guy in there that would mush him up and change the color and everything. Um, obviously, I know a lot more about it now. But um, So I was probably about four at the time, and I think that's, that curiosity um, was fueled by a grandfather. I had a, a grandparent who um, I think if he'd have had the opportunities that I have had, he probably would have become a university professor. He was always tinkering. I had a couple of patents through the company he worked for, um, but never had the opportunities to go to college um, and get any degrees. Um, so, you know, he ended up working as a welder and he was super supportive of, of my interest in science, which was the only, only one in my extended family. So I was the first person to get a college degree, wow. an undergraduate degree, and then went on because I just loved it. I just didn't want to stop
0: doing what I was doing.
1: So I went on to get the PhD. And then after that, I didn't want to stop what I was doing. So I just kept going from there. And there's been some happy accidents along the way. You know, the direction I thought I was going in my career and where I actually ended up. Um, I I started exploring caves um, quite young. I took a In England, we have an outward bound program where they take a bunch of city kids out into the wilderness and expose them to a bunch of things that are supposed to encourage them, but generally terrify everybody. So there was rock climbing and kayaking and and caving. And I just thought the caves were awesome. Everybody was absolutely petrified when we were in there. I mean, everybody wanted to be right behind the leader so they wouldn't get lost. And I was quite happy to kind of get shuffled to the back and just look around. And this kid, his light went out. And so we just shared my light. I took off my helmet and we shared, which is a pretty standard thing to do. And we shared the light to follow the rest of the group and you know i was pretty timid kid really really timid um you know the kind of kid that when you you go somewhere wouldn't let go of the parents hand always had to know where my mom was at all times so for me to demonstrate a fascination with with something that might pe- pe- a lot of people might consider it to be a really hazardous environment i i don't
2: know where it's come from
1: but um I always kept the two very separate because I wanted to be a serious scientist and I wanted to be taken seriously. And so I thought it was important not to, not to mix caving with science because I've seen a lot of people use their science as a way to get into some really cool caves. And it just, to me, felt like they were belittling the science. So the science wasn't as significant as their desire to get into the cave. And so I swore I'd never do that, even though, you know, from very early on, people were saying, well, why don't you come look for this? Why don't you come look for that? And then in my second postdoc, I ended up working for a guy called Norm Pace, who's an incredibly famous microbiologist. He transformed what we understand about microbiology and basically created the microbiology or the microbiome, human microbiome work, and also the microbiology, the built environment, which is studying microorganisms in, in, in our lives and in the buildings that we build and how we, we change those microbial communities. But he's also as famous as a caver, so a cave explorer in the U.S. as he is as a microbiologist. He's won one of the top awards for caving and always stories about Norm and caves started with you know, did I tell you about the time I thought that Norm nearly died? Um, <clears throat> and so uh, he encouraged it. He said, you know, there are very few people trained to your level in either caving or microbiology and so you can you can marry the two so there were people that would do microbiology who were trained microbiologists but not trained cavers who would you know do microbiology very very early uh, very within the entrance of a cave and then there were people that were experienced cavers but really weren't trained in microbiology so there was this this niche i could fill and and it's funny but i think in science you have to bring something New. It's it's a lot more competitive than it used to be. I think I, I came up through microbiology, in the golden age of investment in research in the U.S., which is which was under Bill Clinton, where they were doubling science budgets. i um, and it's not like that anymore, and the market's gotten a lot tighter. And I think it's really important for people looking for science careers is you know what what makes you unique. It's it's really easy to get very very good at one thing and get comfortable at that one thing and try to pursue that. But you you learned that one thing in somebody who's already established in that thing. So you end up competing with the people you trained with. Whereas if you can take that talent and then you can maybe take a big risk and learn a completely different field, then that gives you the opportunity to create a unique niche. And when they need someone who happens to understand these, these two fields, then then you're living in that niche. So uh, yeah, it was all happy accidents. I'd like to say it was planned and I knew, well, in advance, this is the way to build a science career, but, but um, yeah, I, I was
2: lucky. That's great. Can, you, can we talk about caving a little bit more? Can you give us some details about some adventures you have had?
1: Adventures in caving. So, Ernest Shackleton um, always used to say that an adventure is an expedition gone wrong. And I've had lots of, I've had lots of adventures in caves when things have gone wrong. I've gotten squashed. Wow. Um, I've, I've been around when other people have gotten squashed. Um, bad air entrance collapsing and people always think oh you're so brave and you're so fearless because you do these things and i never go in thinking something's going to go wrong because why would i go somewhere where i think i'm going to get hurt so um the majority of times everything goes exactly according to plan but caves are geologic environments so they weren't they weren't built for us to be in them they are Pretty unique in that they allow you to explore something and 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 visit a place that no humans ever seen before. And to do that, what you do is you you make a map and you go to the limit of the map that's being made and you see what's there. And sometimes it's a blank wall, and sometimes there's a passage taking off. And I've been really lucky to. I think we're in a, a golden age of cave exploration in the U.S. right now, where people are finding these these big systems. And I've been on some really big breakthroughs in some amazing caves. And you basically, you go to the edge of the map and you start poking around and try to find what you can find. You find a passage, you usually wiggle through or climb through, it's we're way past the stage where you can just walk in because no one, people stopped walking. So you wiggle in and then there's darkness and you don't know what is there. So there's a lot of curiosity, it's very much like science in that there's, you know, a blank space on the map, you're trying to figure out where it goes. So when we go in there, we explore and you can walk into passages and you'll You'll walk in and there'll be, you know, sediments on the floor that haven't been disturbed for a couple of million years and you walk through them and yours are the first footprints. So it's very much like that man on the moon feeling. So there aren't that many places on Earth where you can go and see something that no human's ever seen without support from a government, right? You have to go to the deep ocean or you have to go up into space. Whereas on Earth, you can just go into a cave and see where it goes. And you need you need training. I mean, it's a cheap sport in that all you need is a helmet and a light um, and some dirty clothes. And and the helmet's kind of important. Somebody asked somebody told me one time, I, said, I don't I don't need a helmet. I'm a really good climber. I won't need a helmet. And the thing is you might be a really good climber outside, but but there's no ceiling outside, right? You can walk down a passage, not notice where you're going, and bonk your head on the ceiling. So it's kind of critical to have a helmet. It saved my life a few times. And it's also something you can hang your light on. Otherwise, you've got to carry your light in your hand. So, um, yeah, but other than the helmet and the lights and dirty old clothes, you don't mind getting money. You know, it's a, it's a really cheap sport to be part of. And then you can take it wherever you want. You can kind of potter around locally and, and just check out caves that have already been explored. Or you can get really good at what you do, learn how to rig, learn how to survey and make maps. And then you get invited on expeditions in exotic places. And so I've been lucky enough... To, to do that. So living, living in Northeast Ohio is not so great for the caving. So I have to travel a lot to do that. Um, and it's easy to get out of shape for the caving. So I spend an awful lot of time and effort staying in shape so I can, I can explore the caves I want to explore. Um, I think being a girl, you have to be tough. When I started out, I think the male to female ratio was about 20 to one. Um, so I'd go on expeditions when I was the only girl and I made the mistake of trying to prove that I was as tough as everybody else. Um, so, you know, I had to be able to carry a pack as heavy. I had to be able to do this. I had to be able to do that. Um, and it made me, so I've always been a tomboy my whole life. I don't think you can be willing to fling yourself around in big piles of mud unless you're a little bit of a tomboy, but it made me, it made me I don't want to say competitive with men, but it made me really aggressive about trying to be an equal. And as I've matured as a woman, I realized that I actually really like being a girl. And there are aspects of being a girl that I thoroughly enjoy. And I don't feel like I have to sacrifice that anymore. And I think when I was younger, there was that, that, that drive to be, you know, be competitive and be as good as. Whereas now I realize that helping other people get to where they want to be and enjoying the ride is is good. And I like being a girl. I like putting on heels. I like wearing fancy dresses. And I don't have to sacrifice my femininity to be accepted as a good cave explorer. But it took me a long time to get to that point. I was probably in my 30s before I realized that. Because I had to, you know... I was fairly muscly in my thirties cause I was training a lot for these expeditions and you know, I looked pretty tough. I looked pretty badass, but people got the wrong impression when they met me because I wasn't a hard, you know, I wasn't hard as a person or as a personality. Um, I was, I was still very, I think girly under it all, but I was afraid of showing that. So I feel much better about admitting that about myself anymore. And the, the, comp- the only competition I have now is with myself, which and is. Why a- did the
2: change happen? Why did you?
1: Remember? It's interesting, actually. I I did an IMAX movie, so I made its documentary, and uh, we were doing a big publicity tour, and we were we were to- touring all over. And I was with my friend um, Nancy Ollenbach, who was in the the movie with me, and she's very small, uh, she's petite, uh, and she's very feminine, and. Uh, I would notice that, you know, I would be very experienced in what I did. But, you know, guys would like fall over themselves to help her. Whereas I was like, why is, why is no one helping me? I know this and I know this. And why is no one falling over themselves to help me? And then I realized, well, she was, she was being feminine and guys aren't afraid of that. Whereas if you try to be tough and an equal and, and, you know, that's, you know, it's been a nightmare dating my <laughs> whole life it's not so hard now but well I'm married now I have a lovely husband but um you know it it's quite intimidating to guys um even my husband when he met me and I had already you know really started to become very feminine at that stage he's like you were really scary when I met you I thought I was going to struggle to keep up with you I projected being tough and I think when you project being tough everybody assumes the worst So he thought if we were going to, you know, do cave work stuff, I'm going to be carrying a 50-pound bag and going three times faster than him, and he was going to be panting to keep up.
2: Is uh, science in general, and biology specifically, are they still male-dominated fields?
1: Yeah, so the trouble with, um, if you look at academic science, there's there's a big problem with the pipeline. So the pipeline being... How we get girls from high school through into scientific careers, even up to the level of being professors. So there's a couple of reasons they there's lots of reasons they the women drop out, and many of them are complex. One of them is the the culture of the institution itself and and how we need to institutionalize how how we look at women and the contributions of women because i think that the things that make science work are the diversity of ideas right so i came in thinking about cave microbiology in a way that no one had thought about it before and that was great that's a new idea that that could come in and we need to encourage that diversity and that's why you bring in these people with different backgrounds but i think something like 60 percent of all phds in biology now go to women. But the number of women in senior faculty positions is something like seventeen percent. Do you know why? Do they know why? So there's multiple reasons. As I said, it's complex. One is um, institutions not recognizing that there are challenges for for women in science that men in science don't don't um, have to deal with. And, and the big one is is a family, right? And you're basically if if you use the tenure system the way that it's built right now is you're asking a woman to choose between a family and a career and so what we have to do is we have to be a lot more flexible about being able to stop stop the tenure clock allow women to 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 have a family and then start it again you can't expect someone to do everything that an assistant professor's got to do which is overwhelming at times when you don't have a family and on top of that you're you know, that's, that's about the time in your life where most people are having kids or people try to squeeze them in as postdocs. And then no one wants to hire them into postdoc because they know that they're going to have kids. So there's lots of things that we can do. The other one is the two body problem where, you know, you meet the love of your life while you're in graduate school and you have two people trained in the same field. Well, how do you, how do you both choose a career and, You know, the reality is that men tend to get more money than women um, and have a better chance of getting employed. So somebody becomes the trailing spouse. And a lot of times the woman takes on that role of being the trailing spouse. So universities need to think about doing two two body hires. How can we keep those women in, right? So one of the ideas is that instead of having one position, if someone comes with a a well-qualified and talented spouse, you have one and a half positions. And then everybody's on three quarter time. So you have the opportunity to use some soft money to, to bring you up to full time status. And that way you can get some really talented people in the workforce and you're not continually using the, losing the, you're not continually losing the women. And the other thing is the role model issue, right? This issue about when, when girls come in, they need to be able to look up and see someone doing um, the research and see themselves in that, right? A lot of times all these things is men in this, this, um, role model position. And so you, it's hard to identify. So if you look in, in our department, I mean, my lab's absolutely packed with women. And I don't specifically select women candidates, they select me. And I think you, you, you tend to find that is that, you know, um, that they can visualize themselves as you and then they pick you to be a, an advisor and then it's your role to make sure that you help these women get up on the ladder and keep keep um, working towards a, a career. So I've been really fortunate in a lot of my advisors have been very supportive um, of me through my career and have always reached down and helped me up, you know, male and female, it's not, it's not gender specific and constantly, you know, giving you advice on You know, try this, try that. When you're applying for this job, make sure you do this. You know, those kind of techniques um, certainly help to keep women in the in the workforce.
2: So, if you could go back and have dinner with your 20 year old self, what advice would you give her?
1: What would I think? I would have told myself to slow down and enjoy the ride a bit. I mean, the best time I ever had in my life was as a graduate student and as a postdoc, but I tried to rush through those as fast as I could to get where I was going that I didn't enjoy it when I was doing it. The, the, the days as much, and you know, we were doing crazy fun things. You know, I had a, I had work life balance. I would go caving. I would go see bands, you know, it was, uh, I had a drummer for a boyfriend. It was fabulous. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, but I think I've gotten better about doing that. I think maybe the younger me could have reminded the older me about work work life balance and how important that was. I think how do you find that balance you don't go home every night and exhausted and all you want to do is have a have a glass of wine and watch Game of Thrones, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean you make it. Yeah. You make the balance.
2: It doesn't
1: happen. Yeah, and it, it's it's hard work because it's really easy. I mean I can I can put in a seventy hour week without much effort. The effort is not putting in a seventy hour week. And my husband, he works in industry and uh you know for him, five p m he's done, and it's been a struggle for for him to see me work like I do, and you know, we do the long distance thing and it'll be over, and it's hard for me to stop at five on a friday and and dedicate the whole weekend to him because I'm always behind, and I'm always needing to catch up, but I've learnt that it nothing is as important as The relationship i'm in and maybe that's what i would tell the 20 something me is that you know the relationships you have with your family with your friends with loved ones it's it's pretty important to mental health and and that balance is good for you as a thinker as well because if you're constantly stressed out you can't be coming up with novel ideas and novel ideas and what pay the bills
2: great that's a great place for us to end it okay great thank you you. thank you dr gilbert run
0: it like a girl. Today's episode of run it like a girl was hosted by the multi-talented Dr. Jody Cairns. Brian Long was the producer, web design and technical assistance provided by Dan Moak and music courtesy of the talented Brooklyn Gilachuk. On the next episode of run it like a girl Jenny Fitz is the founder of the female entrepreneur and mentorship movement known as Fem International, which connects up-and-coming female entrepreneurs from around the world with experts who can mentor them. She's also an author and has co-founded an organization called the Hero Intelligence Agency, which is designed to give youth a platform to have their voices heard. Jenny Fitz on the next episode of Run It Like a Girl.